And for the next uh, three weeks, we're going to be talking about how we can have uh, unstoppable faith as we look at this section in the book of Acts. Uh, and what we're going to look at this morning is going to show us really four points on how we can have a courageous faith and by having this courageous faith, what that will look like for us in our lives. And so that's the trajectory of where we were going as we are in Acts chapter 4. Now, Acts chapter 4 is a continuation from the previous chapter. In Acts 3, you might remember that Peter and John on their way to the temple have healed this lame man and now he was walking and he's leaping and he's praising God and everybody's coming to see what is going on and Peter and John then are going about proclaiming that it is Jesus who has healed this man and is because God has raised Jesus from the dead. Well, as chapter 4 opens, by no surprise, the leaders of uh, uh, of the Sanhedrin do not like what uh, Peter and John have done. You will notice that it tells us there that as they're speaking to the people in verse 1, we have the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees all coming upon them and arresting them because they are teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. You can imagine what that looked like as as this man who is lame all of his life is leaping around and jumping and they all know that he's a lame man. He's all He's been laying there every day at the gates and going into the temple and to be able to see him now walking around and the answer that the apostles are giving is not, we healed him but that God raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus healed Him through our hands. And that's why you see in verse 2 that the proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead and that's why that guy's well. That's what they're walking around saying. Well, they're disturbed by that and are told in in verse 3 that they are arrested and they're held over to the next day so they get to be in prison overnight. And yet, in spite of Peter and John being put into prison, verse 4 says that the number of the people or the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This does not stop the Word of God. This is going to be a central theme throughout this book and particularly in these next three chapters is showing the Word of God is unstoppable. You can arrest Peter and John. You can try to do all that you want against the Word of God, but the Word of God is unstoppable. And that's what happens here. Even though Peter and John are arrested, the people do not go, oh, well, Peter and John got arrested. I guess we should believe in this. It says now we're up to 5,000 people who are are believing. But the scene that is given to us in verse 5 is a frightening scene. It is easy to read through Acts and go, yeah, okay, neat story and all that. But but slow down and think about in verse 5 what we are seeing. It's the next day in Jerusalem. It is the rulers, the elders, the scribes, Look at verse 6. Annas the high priest, Caiaphas the high priest, John and Alexander, the whole high priestly family has all convened for this trial with Peter and John. Now the reason why that's frightening is remember, these are all the figures that got Jesus killed. 
These are all the figures that got Jesus killed. This is no, oh, hey, we explain yourself kind of thing. These are the guys that got Jesus killed. Noting Annas, remember we had him involved in in Jesus' death. We have Caiaphas twice involved in, in Jesus' death as well. And the whole Sanhedrin council is brought together for this. So this is a scary moment. Imagine being Peter and John. You would believe the threat and believe your life is on the line as you stand before them. And they ask you in verse 7, By what authority do you do this? Essentially, who do you think you are and who gave you the right to do this? Why are you doing what you're doing? Who gives you the authority to do these things? So what are you going to say to that? Now you'll notice uh, you have to enjoy the answer that Peter gives. Verse 9, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, You like that? (laughs) If the reason we're standing here is because we did something good for a crippled man, notice the rest. Basically, so be it. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. Did you hear the same answer that they were saying in Acts 3? How, whose authority are you doing this? How is this man? Well, if we're here because a good deed was done, let me tell you who did this good deed. Jesus did. God raised Jesus from the dead and through our hands this man was made well. And that's what you are ultimately seeing. But then notice he pushes it a little bit further and saying, this is the fulfillment of Scripture. The stone that has been rejected is now become the chief cornerstone. Essentially, you guys rejected Him. You rejected Jesus. You had Him killed. But God raised Him from the dead, making Him the foundation of the kingdom. And therefore, there is no other name by which salvation can be found or be proclaimed. There's nowhere else to turn. It is only through this one that God raised from the dead. That's that's His message. Now, What happens next, I think, is fascinating, especially because we are told here in in verse 14, this council and these leaders and this whole high priestly family, they have nothing to say in opposition is what the end of verse 14 says. Like, What are we going to say to this? And here's why, because in verse 13 it says, They saw the boldness of Peter and John. They saw that they were uneducated common men. Now don't read that as that they were stupid. Is that they are not formally trained in religious ways. They are not Sadducees. They are not Pharisees. They didn't go to a school of Gamaliel or any of those kinds of things. But the point is, is they're just your average run-of-the-mill fishermen. <laughs> they're 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 not university of PhD uh, Bible. That's not who they are. And they were astonished 
and verse 13, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so they knew that there was nothing special about them, but they have absolutely nothing to say. Why? Because they, verse 14, seen the man who was healed standing beside them. So change your picture. You had the picture of it was Peter and John standing there. It was Peter, John, and the lame man standing there. And they've seen him standing there. And what are you going to say about that? I mean, what are you going to say? Here Peter and John say the reason this man's walking is because God raised Jesus from the dead. What's going to be the alternative answer? (laughs) What are you going to say to this? And so that's exactly what you see in verse 15. You have to love. They say, you need to get out of the council for a minute. We need to have a talk. All right. Uh, we don't know what to tell you guys. So you guys go into the waiting room for a few minutes. The council here is going to talk amongst themselves. And we're going to figure out what to do. In fact, verse 16, it says, saying, what shall we do with these men? What are we going to do? I mean... Notice their response. For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. You just have to appreciate what they're saying to each other. What are we going to do with these men? It is clear that a sign has been done. It's been clear that the sign has been done through Peter and John. And we cannot deny this. In fact, it's evident to everybody in Jerusalem. Now, wouldn't you expect the rest of the very next verse to say, so we need to listen to Peter and John because what has happened is an undeniable sign and we can't refute it at all. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people... Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. I want you to see something very important here. That I want you to see that the council has every bit of evidence that they need for faith. And yet they don't believe. They have as much evidence as the thousands who are outside who are all believing. They are given all of the information. They are given all of the evidence. They even question Peter and John. Peter and John make it clear it's through Jesus. He's the authority. He's the reason why. This is the proof of how God has raised Jesus from the dead. And they are unable to to deny the miracle. And they don't care. That's what we have to see. They don't care. They want the teaching to stop. The reason why this is important is sometimes we will think that the reason people are not convinced about Jesus is because they don't have sufficient evidence. And if we would just give them sufficient evidence, they would believe. If we could just find Noah's Ark or find the Ark of the Covenant, or find some artifact or some kind of thing that everybody would believe. That's a lie. That is not true. The reason people do not believe is not because of a lack of evidence. And sometimes we think of it like that. 
I just need to come up with more convincing arguments. I'm just not a good speaker. I just, if I had some, some more things I could come up with, if I just memorized all the apologetics books backward and forwards, and I could do all that, and I just became, and I would be able to just convince everybody, you wouldn't convince any more people with all that information, not a single person more. You wouldn't. Friends, a notable miracle has been performed, and they cannot deny it. And they don't care. And we should know this because all throughout Jesus' ministry, people were denying what Jesus was doing. Jesus was doing miracles. It's not like the council didn't have that evidence either. And the same thing here happens again. Is that the issue is a resistance to the truth. That's really the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is resistance to the truth. And the reason why I think this is important is because this should be a foundation for boldness and courage for us. Because I believe sometimes the reason we fear sharing Jesus with others is because we think, well, I don't know enough. I I don't know enough of the evidences I, I'm not good at refuting and I, I don't have all those apologetics inside and out and I don't know what to say and I want us to realize that it's not about presenting wondrous evidences backward and forward and refuting people left and right that's going to be able to bring people to Jesus and they're going to have faith that's not it that's never been it What we are doing is telling people about Jesus and we're going to see who wants to learn more and who doesn't care. It's not that you're going to win the day by being able to refute them. If they don't want to believe in Jesus, if they don't want to accept the evidence, if they don't want to have faith, they're not going to have faith. You've probably experienced that. I've been in plenty of discussions where a person says, well, I just can't have faith because I have all of these doubts. And I go, well, tell me all of your doubts. Well, let's talk about them. And you get to the end of the day and you find out, you want to know why they have doubts? Because they want to have doubts. That's why. And it doesn't matter what the evidence is. I don't want to believe. I want to be doubtful. I want to not know. And that's what these guys are doing right here. They say... A notable sign has been performed through the hands of these men and all Jerusalem has seen it and we cannot deny it. So how are we going to get them to stop talking? (laughs) You really want It's a notable sign. It's undeniable, but that's not the point to them. They do not want to believe. And so what you see in verse 16 or in verse verse 17, they order them to not speak the name anymore. Verse 18, they call them and charge them that they will not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And verse 19, Peter and John said, okay, since you said we can't, we won't. Uh, you know, you guys are the you guys are the authorities around here. I guess we shouldn't do that. Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge. (laughs) You can tell us all day not to speak Jesus, but should we listen to you above God? 
God has told us to speak Jesus. God has told us to worship Jesus. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I want us to hear that response that they give is that we can't stop. We can't stop talking about it even if you tell us not to. We can't stop worshiping Jesus even if you tell us not to. We must obey God. You judge if we should listen to you or listen to God. You decide what you think we ought to really be doing. But we can't stop. Notice the implication of verse 20. We can't help it. We have to talk about this. This is too good. This is too amazing. It is too wonderful. We have to talk about these things. Have you experienced stuff like that in your life that you were like, that is so amazing. I have to tell people. You know, usually like come for me, it's like food, right? You know, that was such amazing food. I got that restaurant. They knocked it out. I got to tell people about that. You experience something that is wonderful. What has to happen in our society? That has to go on every social media channel possible. Everybody needs to know what a wonderful thing this was. We can't help but tell about the wonderful dessert we just had. You see, that's what they're saying. We've experienced something so amazing that we can't help but tell everybody about it. You can tell us not to, but we have to tell people about it. It's too good. It's too amazing. You're not going to stop us talking about Jesus. You're not going to stop us worshiping Jesus. It's too good. It's too magnificent. We have to. And notice, you know, it's concise. But this is still a frightening moment. Verse, Verse 21 And when they had threatened them further, it's just so concise. We we get the sense of it where it's like they said, don't do it. They said, we're going to do it anyway. Bye. That's not what happened. They're saying, you guys need to stop talking about Jesus. You decide if we're going to listen to you or listen to God, but we got to keep talking about Jesus. And it says they keep threatening them. You better stop or you're going to get punished. You know what happened to your leader, don't you? You want to be next? We'll get you on a cross too if you want. You can imagine what those threats looked like. It's not hard to visualize what that looked like as they're threatening them not to to preach these things. In fact, you'll notice the text tells us there's only one reason why they don't get punished right now. Look at it. Verse 21. But because of the people, for they were praising God for what had happened. The only reason they don't get punished in that very moment is because right now outside those doors in the temple courts, everybody's praising God. Well, how are we going to do something to them right now? How are we going to beat them or have them whipped? Or have them executed when everybody's outside thrilled with them. Can't do anything to them right now. So they just threaten them. But I want you to see the realness of the threats. Something was about to happen here. And it doesn't happen yet. Because of the praise of the people. Verse 22, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They knew that a notable sign had been done. So with the threats, they're released. And what are they now going to do? In in verse 23, we see that they're released. They go back to their friends. They go back to the other Christians and they tell them everything that has happened. 
And I want us to think about this. What do you think the disciples are going to go back and tell the other disciples? What are they going to tell them? Hey, guys, we can't worship or proclaim Jesus anymore because the government said not to. You know, the Sanhedrin, they're going to kill us. They threatened us. You know, the only reason we got out of there alive is because everybody was praising God at the moment. But guys, if we keep talking about Jesus, they are going to punish us. They're going to whip us. They're going to get us killed. So, you know, we need to just kind of keep quiet and lay low and not talk about it for a while. We need to probably just let it all calm down and let Jerusalem cool down a minute. Maybe we should keep it to ourselves for a while. That's the rest of the paragraph, right? That'd be the way we would think probably, right? It's easy to fall into, oh, well, you know, okay, they said we shouldn't, so let's not. Verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, here's what they're going to do. They're going to pray. Now, I want you to follow what they do in this prayer because what they say and what they do not say in the prayer are fascinating. And as this prayer unfolds, you will notice it takes a while until they get to their request. In fact, you will notice that there are pieces of boldness and courage that they are grasping for, that they are building a foundation on as they finally get to the request. For example, in verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Just stop there because how they address God is unique here. They don't just say, oh Lord, Greek word kurios. They go for sovereign, a different word, master, the one who is in charge over all things. I want you to see they're already pressing into God, you're in control. You're in charge. You're the master. You're the one who's sovereign. Sovereign Lord. That's what the rest of the sentence is. Who made heaven and earth and sea and everything is in them. Notice that courageous faith is already being developed by seeing that God's in control. That's where their prayer starts. Their prayer starts with God, I know you're in charge. God, I know you rule over all things. I know that we can depend upon you. We know that you are the sovereign Lord. Courage, courageous faith starts there. Just recognizing the God that we serve. He rules over it all. He is sovereign over it all. And they are putting their faith in that very truth. That God has not abandoned them. He's not asleep. He knows what is going on. Second, verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the, uh, uh, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus uh, holy, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Why are they quoting scripture? Why are they reading Psalm 2 right now? I was like, okay, sovereign Lord. 
Your servant David said, Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered against you, against the Lord and his anointed. And then verse 27, and that's what happened with Herod and Pilate and, and, and all the peoples of Israel and with the Gentiles. Why are they quoting the scripture right here? Why do that? It's the second piece that they're resting on for courageous faith is that they realize that there is always resistance against God and his people. The world is always going to resist the will of God. Notice after the threats are breathed against them and they are threatened that they are going to be punished if they keep preaching Jesus. The prayer starts, number one, God, you're sovereign and in control over all things. And number two, Help us realize that this is the way it always goes. This is the way that it always goes. Is that peoples, nations, kings, rulers are always looking to band together and to rise up against the Lord and his anointed. Do we see why this would be encouraging? You say, how does this help in this prayer for having courageous faith except We are supposed to expect this. You know, notice the prayer is not, we are absolutely stunned and surprised that there has been resistance against what we are preaching. We are blown away that people do not love God immediately upon hearing the message. It's not what the prayer is. The prayer is, this is the way it always is. It is always darkness that goes against light. It is always the world against the people of God. There will always be resistance. The world always resists God, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. You have 1 Peter talking about, hey, brethren, don't be surprised. Fiery trial has come upon you. Hey, don't be surprised when they malign you and wonder why you're not joining in with them. Don't be surprised at the difficulties that you're going through. If they crucified your Lord, what are they going to do to you? This is the message throughout the New Testament. And that's what they're depending upon right here. They are finding courageous faith because they understand that resistance is to be expected. And I hope you see that helps. If you go into something knowing there's going to be resistance, then that helps to make yourself ready for it. I think for too long, we've just expected everybody's going to give a Christian a hug and love the message. That's not the way it usually works. And for a long time, we've been in a world where that did work in our country and we've moved away from that. And don't be surprised at that. That's the way it normally works. We were in the anomaly in the past few decades, 100 years, 200 years. Now we're moving back to normal. (laughs) The world always resists the things of God. The world always resists the Lord and his anointed. The world always resists the people of God. Darkness always hates light. Always. That's why they're quoting this. They're quoting a passage that reminds them, why do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed? Because that's what they always do. That's what they always do. And so they are not surprised by that. And notice how that continues in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We 
Will you let that sentence just kind of let the mind go? Quote the scripture about the resistance of the world against God. And then he even illustrated Herod, Pilate, the people of Israel, the Gentiles. To do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Can I say it this way? Nothing that's happening is outside God's knowledge or God's plan. That's what they're saying right here. They're being threatened. And they go, that's the way it always is. The world against the people of God. And God is going to use that to accomplish His will and accomplish His plan. We need to look at the world through this lens because if we look at the world and we look at the resistance against God and against His purpose as something unusual, then what happens is we panic. We become anxious about world affairs. Oh no, look at all the bad that's going on. Look at everything that's happening. What are we going to do? It's not what they do. They look at this through the lens of God is going to use this to accomplish His will. He's accomplishing his plan. He's doing something. He's at work. And I know the difficulty is that we sometimes struggle with the idea that God can be working through evil to accomplish his will. But here's the thing. If God does not accomplish his will through evil people, then what people is he going to use? There's no other alternative. That's all there are. Are wicked people. He's going to accomplish his will. And if it be through the Sanhedrin threatening them, then they're like, all right, God's going to accomplish his will. His plan's going to be done. God is not looking at Peter and John and what happened, and he goes, oh no, I, I, I don't know what we're going to do. That's what they're putting their hope in. Is what Herod tried to do? Well, that's part of God's plan. What Pilate was doing, that was a part of God's plan. And what the Sanhedrin's doing, that's part of God's plan. What people of Israel are doing, that's, that's in God's plan too. And what the Gentiles are doing, that's a part of God's plan too. What you knew and you determined your plan to be accomplished anyway. Friends, we can have courageous faith when we understand that God will accomplish His will through whatever evil goes on. He's going to get His thing done. You can't stand against it. That's the whole point of quoting Psalm 2. What is Psalm 2? We're all going to band together as nations and leaders and rulers and we're going to stop the plan and purposes of God. And what does God do according to Psalm 2? He laughs at that. (laughs) He goes, yeah, right. You can try all you want to. I'm going to accomplish my will anyway. He will have his purposes done. We are able to rest. We are able to have peace. We are able to have confidence. And we are able to have a courageous faith when we understand God will work through that. God will accomplish His plan. He will accomplish His purposes. He always uses the wicked to carry out His plans. Just as you see like in Judas. 
Or maybe we'd want to look at Joseph's brothers. How many examples do we want to look at of God accomplishing his plan through the evil actions of others? His purposes will not be thwarted. And I hope you notice up to this point, we don't have a request in this prayer yet. Have you noticed that? Up to this point, they're just stating, okay, Lord, you're sovereign. Okay, Lord, this is what Psalm 2 says, that there's always going to be resistance. Okay, Lord, we understand that this will accomplish your plan and your purpose. But now let's get to the prayer. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We finally get to the prayer request. And are you surprised by what they ask? They don't say, Lord, don't let them threaten us anymore. They say, You see, they're threatening us, Lord. Give us boldness. Give us boldness. And I was thinking about why, why not ask? Why not ask for God to stop them from threatening? I mean, think about why not just say, please, Lord, have them stop. But I think it fits what they already said in the prayer. The reason why they do not pray for the threats to stop is because resistance is always going to happen. It's like an equivalent to praying to God. Hey, God, would you not be true? (laughs) Are we going to pray? Hey, God, let the world not resist the light. That's the way it's always been. From the very beginning, why did Cain kill his brother? It's right at the start of humanity. Darkness and light don't get along. So it's not, hey, you know, stop it, guys. Stop threatening us. It's give us boldness in the face of threats. God has told us that world leaders and nations and rulers are always going to resist God and his people. And we will pray for boldness to speak, even though we are threatened. That's where courageous faith is going to come from, is that we would ask for boldness. Let's round it out then with these three thoughts and applications for us. Number one, do you see that boldness is not fearlessness? Sometimes we put those two together. Why did they ask for boldness? Because they're afraid. Sometimes we lump them together. Well, being bold means not being afraid. No, you could be completely afraid. (laughs) You could be absolutely afraid. The reason they're coming together in this moment is because they are afraid. You don't pray for boldness when when you're not afraid. You pray for boldness when you are afraid. They're fearful. The Sanhedrin and the high priest killed Christ and they can do it to these disciples too. We need to pray for boldness. And I think that is so important that we see that is that we will pray for boldness. And it's not about not being afraid. You can be afraid and be courageous. 
You can be afraid and be bold. You can be afraid and say what needs to be said, even though inside you're just terrified. You can do that. Pray for boldness and pray for the boldness to obey God rather than people. As the people of God, we must be ready to obey God rather than people. We've talked about this so many times is that as Christians, we submit to the government. We submit to every authority. We submit to every governing authority in every single circumstance to every single law and every single rule, whether we like it or not, unless it tells us to disobey God. There's all kinds of laws and rules we don't like. Tons of them. All your life you've had them. But until it causes us to disobey God, we obey. And we submit to it. But when it does compel us to break God's law, then friends, we better be ready to be fined, be ready to be arrested, and be ready to do whatever else they may throw at us. Because we will speak about the things of God and we will worship God. That's what this text is showing. They submit, 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 submit. But you tell me to stop preaching Jesus, that's not happening. Not stopping. I'll conform to the other things you want me to do. I may not like it. I might think they're dumb. I might think it's great. That doesn't matter. Nobody asks for my consideration on any of those rules. We just follow. I think I talked about this one. They made a speed limit on Okeechobee Boulevard out in Loxahatchee. Go down to 30 miles an hour. That, are you kidding me? So since I think it's dumb, I don't have to keep it, right? That's the world we live in right now. Well, if I think the law is dumb, we don't have to do it. We're all going to die by anarchy if we keep that up. As Christians, we obey the law even if we think it's dumb. And we only disobey if it's directly telling us to violate God's law. And so we need to be ready and to think hard. Am I ready to be fined and arrested or worse for the cause of Christ? So that I'll keep speaking Jesus and I'll keep worshiping Jesus. And finally, then boldness comes from not depending upon ourselves. If we think that we are going to find the strength to serve God in troubling times when the world is coming against us by looking within ourselves and depending upon our own inner strength, it is going to fail. This is why we see the disciples praying to God that the foundation of boldness is that we will see that our God is sovereign who declares that the world will always be in resistance to the light and against his people who are, and God's going to accomplish his purposes. He will accomplish his will through no matter what happens, no matter what happens, he will accomplish his will. So we might be afraid. We pray for God to give us the strength to take a stand and do what's right, to serve God, no matter the cost, no matter the threats, no matter what they say, we will wear Christ, we will show Christ, we will speak Christ so that all that people see in us is Christ and nothing else. That's what they do.
And we can have that boldness too if we pray for it to God. Let's go to God in prayer now. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for boldness for ourselves. As we begin to adjust to dealing with resistance against you, against your anointed and against us, Lord, we pray that we would have a strong, courageous faith. Lord, give us courage to speak about your son to any and everybody. Lord, give us the strength and the boldness to proclaim your name, to confess you as our Savior and our Master and our Lord. Lord, that you'd always give us the strength and the faith and the courage to worship you, even if we are told not to, even if we are threatened against. Lord, give us the strength and give us the the resolute mind that we will serve you at all costs. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to you. We'd be faithful to the governing authorities as we strive to serve you. We pray, as the Apostle Paul wrote, that we would be able to live quiet and peaceful lives so that we could serve you faithfully, so that our light can shine in this dark world. We pray for that opportunity. Give us the chance to speak the words and show it in the darkness around us. And Lord, we, we, we can become afraid. We feel like the darkness is closing in tighter and tighter. Now, Lord, we pray that you'd give us that boldness. Give us the strength that we need. Help us to shine our lights. Help us to not put baskets over them, but give us that strength. Give us the mental fortitude we need to do it. And Lord, we see that your will is going to be done through all things. Lord, help us believe it. Help us to see it, that your will is going to be accomplished in the things that lie ahead in this world and that we put our full faith in you and we believe in you above all else. In Jesus' name. Amen.